This morning we're in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, the center part of Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 25. And we'll see two uh, main focal points this morning as we talk about a man named Simon and the gospel coming to Samaria. Samaria is not a far off place if you don't know your geography of Israel. Samaria was right in the middle. You have Judea in the south and the Sea of Galilee in the north. And the Samarian people were right there in the middle. But they were a people that were segregated out, the enemies of the Jews, those who had been compromised in their faith and their person during the exile of the Jews. And so there was a great division between these people. And we're going to see today Philip going out from Jerusalem to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the enemies of the people of the Jews, to the Samaritans. Uh, and to Samaria and to those people that they might know Christ as their Savior. But in the midst of this is evil at work. But as always, the gospel of Jesus Christ overcomes that which is evil to bring life where there was death. So let's stand to honor the Lord as we read his word this morning in Acts chapter 8, verses 5 through 25. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power, so uh, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Oh, that reminds me of something great, but 
but we don't have time to get sidetracked on that. <laughs> no, I got to do it. So I was in seminary, and uh, one of my gr- best professors, incredible Old Testament professor, uh, he had booted up his, his computer that was in this huge auditorium connected to the sound system. If anybody remembers in the old Windows system, when it first booted up, there was this sound that went, and it made this big sound. And he totally unplanned, as he said, amen, at the end of this incredible prayer, the system goes, in the room, and we're all like, oh, what is happening? It was amazing, but I don't know what just happened there. All right, let's get back to this passage. Sorry for that. Um, Philip goes down to Samaria, and what is he proclaiming? He is proclaiming Christ. He's proclaiming Jesus. It's very simple what he is proclaiming. It is not a message of moralism to become a better person. It's not a message of politics to gain political power. It's not a message of legalism as to how to keep more rules to please God. It is the gospel. And the gospel is Christ Jesus. When we talk about Jesus, about who he was, what his ministry was about, how he lived his life, how he was crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, and what the message of the forgiveness of sins through the substitution atonement of Christ is all about this is the gospel. And this is the same message that Paul went preaching in every place that he went. He said, I come among you to preach Christ and him crucified. That is the message. Anywhere that you go that claims to be Christian and there is little speaking of Christ, you're in a, a bad place because they have substituted something for the essential center of everything that we are talking about, which is Jesus and his salvation. And so this is what Philip goes down to preach to the Samaritans. A message of eternal life and peace brought outside of Jerusalem, taken to the adversaries of the Jewish people. A tangible show of the love of enemy, that we're going to those that beforehand we would not talk to, beforehand we did not care about, but now as Christians, we are different. And we go to show the love of Christ, particularly to those who are our enemies, and particularly to those that we do not love naturally and that do not love us, that those who are far off might be brought near unto Christ." This is evangelism. The word, the Greek word for evangelism is used five times in this passage. It's this this term of preaching or of speaking the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not what I think some of us, at least if you were raised in the way that I was, that there were various times where we were taught how to sort of evangelize, which was a three or four step process depending on the year and what program was being used. And you sort of memorized this and you went out and said it to people. And it just had a weird flavor to it. And it didn't seem like what is happening here. And there's nothing wrong with learning methods for sharing the gospel. But when you share the gospel with another person and you talk to them about Jesus, it shouldn't be a rigid four-step program because I don't believe that's how Jesus came to you. And we talk to people about Jesus because he has transformed us. He's our savior. And we tell them about Jesus. And yes, those programs are helpful in that they talk about the essential elements of what we shouldn't skip over, especially sin and repentance. That's the hardest part of talking to anybody about Jesus is for them to recognize that they're a sinner and that they have to repent from their sins. 
But I don't believe that Philip's presentation to these people was some rote thing that he learned from Peter. But instead, it is all that he has learned about Jesus. He is going and telling them that they might believe in Jesus. And what he was saying to them was of such importance that it says in verse 6, they paid attention to him. As he was speaking to them, in the various ways that he was speaking to them, they listened to him. And they took in this message, and as it says in verse 12, men and women believed what he said about Jesus. And they were baptized, and they came into the church. And there was something happening in Samaria that had never happened before. But as this was happening, in this land of evil, there was confrontation with evil. We see in verses 7 and verse 9. Verse 7 speaks about the confrontation with various evil spirits. And that Philip is casting these things out. Power uh, given by God to overwhelm that which is evil. We're going to just hold that thought for a moment. But never where the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached and where the power of God is present can evil ever stand. It is always displaced and pushed out by the light. Darkness displaced by light. The power of evil pressed out by the power of God. And that is what is happening here with Philip as he goes proclaiming Jesus. But not only are there evil spirits, but there is an evil man, an evil influencer in this area, which is probably part of the reason why there are various evil spirits, that this person has been an evil influence in this area for a long time. And his presence and his work has worked its way into the hearts of the people. It says in verse 9 that he practiced magic. So uh, we need to stop and define that a little bit. And we're not talking about you know, the child's fiction of Harry Potter. And we're not talking about like sleight of hand with cards and squishy balls and, and, and hats and things like this. The, the Greek word here for magic relates to witchcraft or sorcery. Something that relates to true evil. A craft that seeks to control evil spiritual power for your own personal ends. Taking hold of some evil power and using it for some end that you want to see for yourself. And this is what Simon represented. He was not a neutral character. He is a, an evil character, an agent of Satan. And the people, as it says in verse 10, had also paid attention to him. And they had paid attention to him first. They had listened to him for the years that he was with them and doing the evil things that he was doing amidst them. And they thought that he had the power of God. They were amazed by what they saw in him and didn't understand who he was. And in their naive nature, they believed that he was a representative of God. Before we go on to talk more about Simon, I need to ask you, especially in the day and age and the place that we live, do you believe in spiritual evil in the world? There are a great many people today that do not really believe that there are such things, that there is no spiritual evil in the world. I would remind you of a powerful verse from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 27, which says, evil comes to him who searches for it. It's a powerful verse. Evil comes to him who searches for it. There is evil in the world. And if you go looking for it, you will find it. If you need any 
recollection of the fact that there is spiritual evil in the world today, you need to look no further than the recent attack in Israel, especially the um, accounts that have now very much come to light about the, just the, the sexual violence brought to bear upon the Jewish people by uh, Hamas. As a, if you have not read about it as an adult, you need to go. It is, if, you, if you need any convincing that there is evil in this world, there is evil. There is a devil. There is Satan. Satan means adversary, an adversary of Christ Jesus, an adversary of your soul and of mine. There are things of darkness. There are things that pervert all goodness in the world, that take every good thing and turn it to evil. There is evil that brings fear and anger and division and hate and chaos and depravity. The Apostle Paul writes to us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, and he says, Give no opportunity to the devil. That's a powerful statement. It means that every time you begin to see such evil in the world creep into your life, you should close the door. You should never search for or seek out evil in this world. You should never, ever try to enter into the path of Simon, which is to harness such evil things for your own personal ends. And everywhere that you see evil creeping into your life, you should submit yourself to the Lord Jesus. Come to him and cut these things off. Close these doors. And those of you that are dads, be careful in protecting your family. Many people think that you know, having a gun in the closet is the most important way to protect your family, but I tell you it's not. The most important way that you can protect your family in this day and age is to protect them from evil by watching out for your children and your spouse and your relatives as far as evil entering into your home and doing everything that you can under the power of the Lord Jesus to cut it off that it may not enter in. So this was Simon. An evil influence on these people, an influence that these people had listened to. Though he was a person not representing the power of God, he is a false prophet or a false teacher, someone that rep represents some dark power, similar to what we saw in the Old Testament with Moses, where you have Moses coming into Pharaoh's court and there are these magicians or those that have some dark power and their power has um, persuaded Pharaoh that they are something of God until Moses shows up on the scene and has the real power of God and in short order puts these people to the side and the power of God overwhelms all of these things and are eventually cast out in the same way or a similar way that we see evil cast out before Philip as he ministers the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is important for us to understand in talking about these things that there is no yin and yang, there is no dualism in Christianity. If you've ever seen that old symbol of, of light and darkness mixed with each other in the yin-yang, this is the idea that there's about equal parts of good and bad in the world, a little good and every bad, a little bad and every good. This is no part of Christianity. Dualism is the idea that there's basically equal parts of good and evil in the world, and they're struggling and struggling. We have no, we're not quite sure which way this thing is going to work out, and we just really don't know. But you should tap into one power or the other and take sides. All this is, all this is false teaching. The scriptures are very clear. 
that in God's time, all evil will be displaced and there will only be light and peace. And those who are not with Christ Jesus will be judged and cast into hell and outer darkness. And this will be done according to God's will and according to his time. And so it is not that the Lord Jesus does not have the power to accomplish these things, but he is working out his will according to his time. And this is a time of the spread of the gospel, that the gospel might go forth in power and displace darkness and evil through the preaching of Philip and then the coming of Peter and John. There's a surprising note in this passage that Simon makes a confession of faith. As you work down through this, you're not expecting that to happen. And then he comes and, and, and makes a confession of faith and it's baptized and it says he follows closely with Philip. So he's, he's part of the crowd now. He's, he's following Philip around, wants to learn what's going on with Philip. And um, it's, an, it's an interesting thing. Wherever the Lord is at work, however, there will always be those whose hearts are false. And this is counterfeit faith. Something that looks true, but is not true. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. But before we do that, we need to pause because we've got two important parallel things happening in this passage. One is what's happening with Simon, and the other is what's happening with those who truly believe as the gospel goes into Samaria. So let's look at that in verses 14 through 17. So many men and women, in verse 14, uh, it says in verse 12, many men and women have believed and are now being baptized. And this uh, work of the Lord makes its way back to Jerusalem. And so they send out Peter and John as apostles to Samaria to aid Philip and strengthen him in his ministry. And then there is this issue of the coming of the Holy Spirit. What is described here is that these people have believed in Jesus Christ, uh, that their belief is authentic, but they have not received the Holy Spirit, even though they have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So Peter and John come from Jerusalem to support Philip in his work. They pray for these people and lay hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Before I come to conclusions, I want to look at a couple of other things here in the book of Acts to help us grasp what is going on. The book of Acts is a book that speaks to and explains and helps us understand the transition between the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, things which were symbolic to things that are real and fulfilled in Christ, a covenant that is conditional to a covenant where all of the uh, conditions have been met in Christ that by grace we might be saved, a time where the Holy Spirit is further off, not as present personally with people, and coming out from this holiest place to be indwelling our hearts, each and every one personally. There is a shift between before Christ and after his resurrection and ascension. And it does not happen all in one moment. There is an outworking of these things that is explained in the book of Acts. And one of the most important is the way in which the Holy Spirit comes to these various people groups. The first is the day of Pentecost with those who are Jewish and are in Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes to them. There is this occasion where those who are sort of half Jew, they're a, a, a blended group of people. The Holy Spirit comes to them. And then there is in Acts chapter 10, which we'll get to in a few weeks, just a, one of my favorite passages related to Cornelius. 
a full Gentile, a Roman centurion, but devout in his faith and how the Holy Spirit comes to him and to his household. And again, Peter is the agent of that in Acts chapter 10, verse 44. It says that when Peter went to his house, the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles and then they were baptized. And so after this occasion that's in our passage this morning and the occasion with Peter and Cornelius and his household and the Holy Spirit now having come to everyone, there are a lot of questions. There's questions by us as we read these passages and there were questions by those back then as to what is going on. So in Acts 11, after this discussion back and forth, I would like to read for us Acts 11, 15 through 18 where Peter responds to what has happened. He says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning, meaning Pentecost. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So interesting. So we have the apostles, each one having believed already, then receiving the Holy Spirit in a, in a powerful way. The Samaritans having believed and then receiving the Holy Spirit, then Cornelius, who has already believed, then receiving the Holy Spirit. So the point that, one of the points that I want to make this morning is that the Holy Spirit must be present and at work in a person's life for them to come to salvation. Regeneration is the power in the work of the Holy Spirit. So it is not that the Holy Spirit was not present in the life of these believers beforehand. He was, and he had been working. But there is some special giftedness, and there is some special work at this appointed time in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit by the hands of the apostles is coming to these people groups to show them that God is now with them in a new and different way and is bringing each one of these people groups into the unified church. We're going to talk about that more in just a moment. But it is very important that we understand that no one can come to salvation apart from the Holy Spirit. And so it is a wrong reading of these passages to think that these people have come to salvation apart from the Holy Spirit and are now receiving the Holy Spirit. God was doing a special work at that time that is not normative. Normative meaning we should expect this all the time over and over and over. It was an expanding of the church, and the apostles, especially Peter, were used as a unifying agent to bring the Holy Spirit to the church. I want to read a, a quote from John Calvin that I think is particularly important in this situation. He says, God could have finished that which he had begun by Philip, but to the end that the Samaritans might learn to embrace brotherly fellowship with the first church, he meant to bind them herewith as with a band. He meant to grant the apostles the privilege that they might uh, better all grow together into one faith of the gospel. And we know that it was otherwise dangerous, lest seeing the Jews and Samaritans were much 
unlike in mind and manners, being so divided, they should by this means divide Christ or at least feign to themselves being a new church. So the idea is that they come to salvation, and if the Lord does not bring Peter in to bring them in to the early church, that they feel like they have some other form of Christ, and they, they form a divided church from the very beginning, or perhaps two completely different churches. We've seen everyone that has been a Christian for a while is sad about the divisions in the church. When the Bible says there should be one church because there is one head of the church, there is one gospel, there is one baptism, and yet we see all these fractured denominations all over the place. And so this, in my understanding of part of what God is doing here in this beginning, by withholding the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit from these people until Peter arrives as an emissary and representative and witness of Christ is that there might, no, there might be no initial fracture in the church, but that the church might begin as one. And so they keep folding new people into one church that it might go forward in the early church with no division. And that is what we see in the early church. This is my understanding of what is happening here. There are other interpretations of this passage, but I think it is important that we rule out certain aspects of what some people see this passage as, which is a normative thing that this should always happen this way and that there's going to be some apostle that's going to come lay his hands on you and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit from that person. I absolutely reject that interpretation because as if you've been in this church for a while, you know that I do not believe there are apostles in our time. The apostles are those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. They were uh, they fit a specific period of time in the church. And so when we come to salvation, the normative way that God works is that the Holy Spirit immediately indwells our hearts and that we are immediately uh, indwelled by God's Spirit and gifted for what he would have us to do. And we go forward from there to grow in Christ in understanding of what has happened to us. But there is no two-stage process. Once established, this does not happen again. It is an exceptional work of the Lord in these passages. Going forward, there is no separation between salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There is no two-step process in salvation. Let me return to Simon. Simon, after seeing Peter do this, Peter and John, he says that he wants this power. He wants to pay them for this power. And this goes back to magic. And Simon's understanding of magic. He sees them as like himself. And he believes that he can pay them to teach him how to do this. That he might go and harness God and use him and his power for his own ends. And that is why Peter's response is so powerful. Your heart is not right before God. You are bound up in wickedness. May your silver perish with you. He wants no part of Simon and the unrighteousness and the duplicity of Simon's heart is revealed finally in his motives in asking for these things. Unlike Simon, the apostles never solicited money for the spiritual work that they did. Can you imagine that the, the apostles going and doing some ministry like this and then charging the people or asking them for money at the end of it? That never happens in the book of Acts, ever. 
David Peterson writes, whenever religion is used to make its leaders seem great and powerful, and whenever religion becomes a commodity by serving the interests of those who have or want money, it has become corrupt. And if you put that together with many ministries in the world today, it is a strong marker of corruption in the church. From this incident comes the word simony. If you've ever heard that word before, it was a major problem in the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. Simony means paying to receive a spiritual office. Pope Benedict IX was the worst of this. In the 11th century, he openly auctioned off the offices of the Roman Catholic Church to the highest bidder. It was a way of him raising funds and having powerful people be in offices of the church. It obviously worked to corrupt the church because it was akin to what we see here with Simon, a person trying to buy the authority and power of God to use it for their own ends. There are many false churches today that still practice some aspect of what we see here. They in some way see something that they believe to be the power of God and they go to whoever is leading that situation or carrying it forward and say, teach me what you're doing. I'll pay you to teach me this so that we can bring that program or that thing into our church and harness this same technique or this same purpose to bring about by our means what is happening elsewhere. This is not gospel ministry. This is people using their own strength and their own techniques and their own means to try to take hold of God and manipulate him. May the Lord steer us away always from such things in this place. Well, as we close, I have to ask you about where is your soul before God? We began with the preaching of the gospel and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the revealing of a false professor, a false believer. Not true in his confession. We know from church history that Simon goes on to create a sect called the Simonians, which is a syncretistic sect. To syncretize means to take many uh, parts and pieces of religion and weld them together into one alloy, trying to make a better religion. And so he was a heretic in his ways. But what is so fascinating and important is that throughout this passage, whether it's Philip, Peter, John, none of them are able to see that he is a false believer until it is revealed through his actions, all the way to baptizing him. This is something that's actually encouraging to me when periodically I will baptize someone that after time, because it's, it's obvious they're not a true believer. If, if Philip missed it, so can I. If Peter missed it, so can I. But God doesn't miss it. You know, if you are here this morning and you know that you have professed things of Christ, not because you believe in the resurrection of Jesus or want the forgiveness of sins, but that you want something that the church has to offer and you're trying to use it for yourself and your own good, you fall in the same category as Simon. It will be revealed eventually the falseness of your faith. And I pray that the faith of everyone here this morning would be true would be earnest, that our love for Jesus and our calling out to him as our only hope, our anchor, our Savior and our Lord would be an earnest confession of faith. For the Lord always meets the humble and the earnest, and it is those whom he saves. Let's bow our heads and pray.